0: Who are the Mountain Meisters?
1: Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus.
2: Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it.
1: You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have.
0: Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts,
1: Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank.
2: Welcome to Mountain Meister. Russell here. Hey guys, it's Ben. Today on the show we have John Houston. John has completed major expeditions to the North Pole, South Pole, Greenland, and most recently on Canada's fabled Ellesmere Island. In 2009, he and his expedition partner became the first and only Americans to reach the North Pole unsupported. A self-sufficient and self-powered journey of 55 days and over 475 miles. A resident of Evanston, Illinois, John works as a motivational speaker, safety and logistics consultant, and guide. So, John... Ben and I were talking and with all your extreme adventures and inspiring things that you are talking about based on historical figures and events, all that coupled with your rugged good looks, we think you're kind of like Indiana Jones of polar expeditions. Does that sound (laughs) about right?
1: Yeah, Indiana Jones is my hero as a kid. I dug up the backyard several times and I love those adventure stories. I love the Contiki story. I think I made my mom and dad read that story over and over and over and over.
2: Nice. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: I'm kind of a history buff. I love the historical, biographical stories of of people achieving seemingly impossible things. I find that those kind of stories are universal through time. And I became captivated by historic polar expedition stories more like the Norwegian ones especially, Roald Amundsen, Fridtjof Nansen, Otto Svedrup. And these guys are relatively quiet because they come from Norway and because their expeditions were successful. I think that today's society celebrates stories that you know are like scandal and murder and things like that, and, and the positive stories get buried, and the same is in history. So I kind of have bottled my career after after those those kind of unsung guys. But I find that their methods of taking on challenge can be a pretty good roadmap to finding success.
2: Hmm, interesting. So you're defined as a polar explorer. What does that mean exactly?
1: Yeah, polar explorer, it's a bit of a misnomer, the title polar explorer, because you, know, today, you can be a mountaineer and someone will know what you do when you tell them, oh, I'm a mountaineer or I'm an alpinist. But the, the true polar explorers filled in the map of the planet. And that doesn't happen so much today. But there's really no other better term for uh, long-distance polar skier or expeditioner. So polar explorers today do major expeditions in the Arctic or Antarctic and are self-sufficient and in remote locations and are kind of doing what the historic guys did, but just with modern modern equipment.
0: So if everything is basically discovered, what are you exploring?
1: Right. It's an exploration of self more than anything these days. We lay challenges out there and we, we want to see how we measure up against those challenges that we've set for ourselves. And it's that kind of personal journey that, that is the story. There's research and science that explorers can do along the way. And depending on how the expedition is set, is set up, sometimes you can do a lot of great research. And sometimes you just don't have much time for that sort of thing. Every time you go to a new place or do something different, it's, it's a new kind of exploration. It's, a new, it's new for that person. So it's, it's slightly a metaphor, but, but it's, it's, it still feels like exploration.
2: So what do you mean by self-sufficient?
1: Yeah, by self-sufficient, I mean polar explorers. We're not using airplanes to fly to the North Pole, for example. We might get picked up there at the end of the journey, but we're moving ourselves through the environment through skiing or sometimes kite sailing, dog sledding, that sort of thing. So I want
0: to go to the famous polar expedition that you did in 2009. You were the first American with your partner, Tyler Fish, to go unsupported from land to the North Pole. So 55 days, 475 miles, and it's been called the toughest expedition on the planet. So what makes this the toughest?
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's one of the toughest expeditions on the planet because the Arctic Ocean is the most alive force of nature that, that I've ever encountered. And Arctic Ocean is it's an ocean, but it's frozen. And it's covered by these gigantic plates of sea ice. And these plates of sea ice, they set up differently every single year. And so the route, even though you're putting in it the same coordinates, Every year, the ice will be different every single year. Sometimes it will be relatively easy and flat, and sometimes the pressure of ocean currents and wind currents pushing that ice will create endless fields of like junkyard rubble that you have to basically rock climb horizontally north. And There's also a lot of sea ice drift, which we experienced toward the end of our expedition, where you can be on these pans of ice and you wake up a few miles south of where you went to sleep and and you're on the wrong end of the treadmill and the Arctic Ocean is it's not as cold as Antarctica but it's, it's very humid the water temperature is always warmer than the air temperature and that kind of creates these low-hanging moisture fog clouds that exacerbate the feeling of cold quite a lot and even though it might be 40 or 50 below It feels a lot colder.
2: When Ben and I were starting to get this podcast together, I was thinking about, you know, if I were to start a business or start something and I had one person to choose, what kind of person would I choose there? And I was thinking about my strengths and my skills and then also his. I'm a nerdy engineer, and so I had to pick some uh, finance guy to even us out. So what did it take for you to decide on your partner for this type of journey?
1: Tyler was a mentor of mine at Outward Pound. We both worked at an Outward Bound school in northern Minnesota. And we've been on the same cross-country ski racing team as well. So we both were athletic guys and I came up with the idea. I didn't want to do it with someone who was a significantly older than me. I wanted to do it with someone at the same level so we could go through the experience with a full togetherness. And we wanted the full entire aspect of the the challenge. Like We knew it would be difficult and doubtful and And it was crazy to raise $200,000 and put three years of our life toward this goal. I wanted somebody who I could really feel I could be in the emotional trenches with. And I felt that Tyler was that guy, that he's a great communicator. He's a great athlete. We have the same kind of foundation in our expeditionary career. And I felt that ego wasn't an issue with him, that he knew how to kind of take care of a partner relationship uh, in a way that's, that's so important out there.
0: To piggyback off of that, were there any qualities that Tyler had that you kind of needed to compliment you and vice versa? Did you have any attitudes or qualities that complimented him?
1: I think that as far as complimenting each other, Tyler and I are pretty different personalities. He's kind of like the philosopher and I am more of the taskmaster type personality. And our skill sets were, were, were somewhat similar. I had more polar expedition experience at the time, but Tyler probably had more years traveling in, in uh, wilderness than me at that time. So I think our, our differences were, were more like our mental approach to things. We come at the world from a different angle. And I think that I probably helped motivate him through my, my task focus, and he probably helped me... Acknowledge the emotional side of uh, the expedition and be more human out there and and deal with kind of that side of it, which is important. I mean, these trips are so hard and they're very stressful and you have to be able to deal with interpersonal issues well or that you you can erode the trust that exists or possibly fail because you're not communicating as well as you need to be.
2: Yeah, and a big part of this must uh, be the preparation. I think I saw a quote that you said or a similar quote that said, the expedition is in the preparation. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that?
1: right. We like to say that the preparation is the expedition. I mean we 'd never been on the Arctic ocean uh, we 'd never done an unsupported expedition. We felt we had a great foundation, but that by setting the goal as a long term goal three years into the future, it allowed us to treat those three years as education and allowed us to make mistakes and learn and, and take training expeditions and I think that an expedition team or any expedition team, you get out on the ice, you get out on the mountain, and sure, the weather can be bad or the ice can set up horribly. But it really comes down to how well you're prepared and how well you can then adapt to the changes once you're out there. And we took it really seriously. I mean, we dragged tires around to simulate pulling sleds.
0: The tire dragging and just the physical preparation that you do for a journey like this is absolutely incredible. What I'm really not familiar with is how do you prepare yourself mentally for this kind of thing? I mean, you're you're out there for... Two months and you're 475 miles in negative 40 degree temperatures. It's got to be very mentally tasking.
1: The long term commitment and the physical training both feed into the mental preparation. When we're pulling tires, we're moving at the same pace that we are on the ice. And the mind kind of gets used to that snail leg crawl and it feels comfortable when we're on the ice, but just in a different environment. And We also do a lot of positive visualization. While I'm pulling tires, it's boring. I will envision scenarios that happen on the ice and kind of puzzle through how we would solve them. And we would talk through those scenarios as well. We call them kind of critical incident planning discussions where, you know, if if this happens, what are we going to do? And it's not always going to be cookie cutter. Perfect. The way the envisioned incident happens, if it does, but at least we've thought through some of the steps. I think another part of it is we've done our research. We knew that at least 50% of unsupported expeditions to the North Pole fail within wow. the first 10 to ten days or two weeks. Uh, it's extraordinarily cold. Climatization is important. The mental monster of traveling one mile a day in an eight-hour travel day on a 475-mile trip is just too much for people to bear sometimes. They just cannot envision themselves being successful so we just we just kind of took the first part of the expedition as a training trip that was a a mental choice that like hey we're going to go out there and we're going to allow our bodies to adjust we're not going to be too attached to our distance and we're just going to get safe and comfortable and get get our routines down and, and then move faster i think that's part of the mental part of it is that we embraced the difficulties as part of the trip and we wanted the difficulties. And I think that, that those kind of realistic expectations make it seem more possible when you're in there. Like, hey, yeah, this is hard right now. And that's what we that's what we signed up for.
2: I'm picturing you dragging one of those tires right now. and You must have to go for miles and miles. You must run past some people. Do they ever give you funny looks? And do you have to explain yourself ever?
1: Yeah, my favorite story about that is I dropped my car off at the car repair one afternoon. And decided it would be a good idea to pull my two tires, which weigh about 45 pounds each, back to my office. And it's in Chicago. It was hot as could be, like 95-degree day, just swampy. And I'm pulling through all these different neighborhoods over concrete sidewalks and down the street. And this, you know, not-so-nice neighborhood. And and I turn the corner, and there's this, like, pack of teenagers walking toward me. And they look really tough, you know, like teenagers kind of (laughs) like... kind of like have that tough swagger when these guys pulled it off pretty well they looked like the real deal i'm like oh this could be not good there's no other people around And, and i get closer to them and they kind of stop and look at me strange and i keep pulling my tire click click my ski poles are moving and then they kind of part onto the side of the sidewalk and they as i get real close and they give me like the fist pump of like respect. guys. <laughs> like, all right, respect. So I get a lot of that. It's really funny. Cars slow down. People honk their horns. I get a lot of jokes about like, dude, where's your car? Or, Can I ride on your tires? And, and it's funny, but, but I've heard a lot of car jokes.
0: <laughs> so uh, let's go to the North pole with you. I, I want to ask some pretty rudimentary questions. First of all, what does negative 50 feel like? I mean, you do all this preparation, but that's cold.
1: Well, cold is cold no matter what, and it just happens faster or can be harder to reverse when it's extraordinarily cold, like minus 50.
0: And how do you reverse it? Do you just keep moving?
1: That is one of the big things. We eat a ton of calories so that we have enough fuel. you got to have that, otherwise Mm -hmm. you you don't have any energy in your system to warm up, and we try to stay hydrated. If you're hydrated, you're going to greatly reduce your chances of frostbite and thin out your blood a bit so it gets to your extremities. Yeah, we move around. We we take very short breaks. We try to maintain our blood circulation. And your hands and toes will get cold quickly if, if you stop because your blood will shunt toward your kind of core area. And you just have to reverse that by flapping your arms around and waving your feet, keep moving. And it's vicious out there. I mean, a lot of people have gotten frostbite I've gotten some minor kind of wind scars but never like I've never really gotten serious frostbite and part of it is because we're so diligent about changing. If we're too cold we have to change what we're doing. We can't just stand there we can't turn on a heater we, we have to change what we're doing with put on another layer or vigorously wave our arms around until that we, we can feel our fingers again at the moment we get lazy with that we pay for it.
0: And you mentioned the food. I read that you consume more than 7,000 calories a day, and most of what you're eating is deep fried bacon, chunks of butter, and fat laden pemmican stew. What is fat laden pemmican stew?
1: Yeah, uh, pemmican comes from Native Americans originally. It was kind of the original cliff bar, dried meats, fat, and whatever veggies were around. They made it into a, kind of a transportable foodstuff. And early polar, polar explorers adopted it and added more fat for their own purposes. And do you
0: enjoy the fat-laden pemmican too?
1: When I'm outside, I do. If I'm inside working at my computer, it would be way too much. But what it is, <laughs> it's, it's, it looks like a, a super dense meatloaf. Ours was made out of chicken and pork lard and... And I think there was some lamb in there and a few veggies and spices. And you take a block of that and put it in a pot of boiling water and make a stew out of it. And we we added freeze-dried cheese, whole milk powder, butter. We had some bacon left over for lunch. We throw that in there and then we put it on top of ramen noodles or instant rice and then spice it up with whatever, garlic or Mexican spices, whatever we had for that day. We loved every single bite, no <laughs> doubt.
2: <laughs> so I s- noticed that you had two sleds that you were dragging most of the time, and they probably weigh hundreds of pounds each. How much of those sleds are actually food?
1: Our, our, our sled low is 300 pounds per person. And I think we had a, a, around 130 pounds of food, roughly two and a half pounds per person per day. So 55 days, I think that gets pretty close to 130.
0: The North Pole is this frozen body of water, but when things freeze a certain way, you get these big mounds of frozen ice chunks. And I forget, what did you call those before?
1: Rubble. Sea ice
0: rubble. The sea ice rubble. How much of a pain is it to get over those? I mean, you can't just walk around them because sometimes they last for miles, right? And you have to kind of make your way over them.
1: The best way to describe sea ice rubble is to think about the biggest junkyard you've ever seen in your life. It's this completely random, broken-up sea ice sheets. The the ice can be like popcorn, shoebox-sized rubble that can feel like you're going to break your ankles all the time or two, like vaulted Volkswagen minivans all piled onto each other, stretching to the horizon. And it, it is a totally awesome sight to behold, because it's fifty below, you have these intense creaking and moaning of your skis and sled dragging across the ice. And so it feels really otherworldly out there. It's beautiful. But it is difficult and we knew it's part of the trip, especially the early part of the trip. And we, we had actually had a good time with it for the most part because time passes quickly when you're in rubble. You're making decisions constantly and it feels like you're in a maze. You can you can only really see a mile north because the rubble piles up so much. And it feels like you can see a far distance, but you really can't see that far. And you try to choose the path of least resistance, but you just have to go and keep going. And eventually it, it becomes less rubble and more like farmer's fields where you have a big wide open space and then like a rubble fence between the field and then another big wide open space. But even on the, like the last day on the way to the North Pole, day 55, we had... No half an hour are we stuck in this rubble mess. Uh, so it's frustrating, but you got to be careful. There's some safety risk in there. Ice can fall on you or you can, your sled can hit you. If you don't load it right. For the most part, if you can let go of the pace that you're going, it's pretty entertaining.
2: Yeah, it just seems like this huge abyss of nothingness. Do you ever encounter any animals out there?
1: It's fairly rare to see animals on the way to the North Pole when you leave from Canada because there's not a lot of open water. We saw polar bear tracks, fairly fresh. One morning we saw a few seals pop their heads out of open leads, which is where the sea ice pans spread apart. kind of looks like a lake or a river that hasn't refrozen. saw a lot of Arctic fox tracks, but never, never any foxes. I've seen plenty of Arctic wildlife in other locations, but not on the way to the North Pole.
0: So you said when the ice separates, you get these rivers. Is it ever a problem to get past those rivers?
1: Yeah, getting across leads on your way north is one of the, the major obstacles. And it, historically, it was a puzzle that people couldn't solve. Like, were they going to use a boat to get across? Or, you know, if the ice is only partially set up, what happens if you fall through halfway across the lead? And it does look like a river that hasn't frozen. That's the best way to kind of visualize it. So what you need to do is ski along the side of the the lead until you find a place that, Looks solid enough to cross or, or narrow enough where you can swim across and it sounds like oh my god you're gonna swim in the Arctic Ocean and it's minus 30 air temperature well the, the water temperature is 60 degrees warmer than, wow. than, than, the, than the air so it's actually like a hot tub feeling you warm up as soon as you get in the water and we put on these big baggy dry suits that cover everything from our boots to our head we don't have to take any clothes off to put, them on, put the dry suit on and it's, it's fun. The, the suits trap air. They're buoyant. And, and we kind of like back paddle ungracefully across to the other side and pull our sleds across. They float too. And, and then we keep moving north. That's fascinating. Yeah. My dad's been up to the Arctic a few years back and I took him swimming. It's really not that big of a deal, but <laughs> oh but my it, god, it's not, it's about perceived risk and you have a lot more control when you're in a swimsuit than when you're on some sketchy ice in the middle of a lead that you think that's going to not hold you.
0: So could you describe to us maybe a day in the life a little bit? So you wake up in the morning. What are the first things you do in the morning?
1: When we wake up, the first thing we do is one person goes outside the tent and checks on the gear, and and the person who's left in the tent takes out kind of a, a brush that's maybe a foot long, and that person brushes the tent walls, to remove all the frost that's accumulated from during the night. It's kind of a shower of frost that comes down it. And you don't do that when you turn on the stoves in the morning, which is the next thing. You get all this condensation and kind of dripping rain. Moisture control on the Arctic Ocean is, is one of the major variables that we have to deal with.
2: Are you cooking in the tents?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Oh. We have to. It's, it's dangerous. We had a small tent fire early on. I'm Actually, it wasn't a tent fire we had a little bit of fuel leak, and luckily we were able to throw the stove out of the tent. But
0: <laughs> oh my.
1: there have been expeditions where the tent is burned, and, and it can be life-threatening at that point because you don't have a tent, and uh, you're out on the Arctic Ocean. So we're super careful about how we manage our stoves and fuel and how we keep our pumps warm as possible so that all the the rubber pieces don't shrink in the extreme cold. The only way we we can uh, dry anything out there, we basically take two MSR whisper lights and we have these little platforms underneath so that the heat doesn't burn down to the tent floor and we turn those on in the middle of the tent. We don't have any down fabrics in the tent during this time. We're, we're very careful. Uh, we, we leave our sleeping bags outside when we're cooking and we, we turn on the stoves and we get like a, a short period of heat in the tent while we're cooking. And that's the only external heat we get the whole time. Uh, so that's when we hang our mittens and socks in, in the upper part of the tent to dry out. We don't have enough fuel to, to heat the tent while we're not cooking.
2: So how much sleep are you guys actually getting day to day on these journeys?
1: In the beginning, it was very dark and very cold. And we knew we could only travel so far. Uh, We didn't want to get injured or do something stupid. So I get frostbite. So we slept 12 hours a day in the beginning and really just kind of let our bodies settle in. We had been super maximum stressed for about two weeks before we hit the ice. Just packing for an unsupported expedition is just monstrous, stressful. Because you don't want to get anything wrong. Once you're out there, if you don't bring the right items or something breaks, you're, you're stuck. There's no resupplies. So then toward the end of the trip, we, we decreased our sleep quite heavily because our sleds are lighter. We're more efficient putting in big hours. So toward the end of the trip, we reduced our sleep to five or six hours and then even more in the last few days.
2: So then are you only traveling when there's daylight?
1: Uh No. When we started the expedition, there was no daylight. You could see there was visible light. It looked mm. like dawn or just post-sunset a few days later the sun came up for 20 minutes and then it advanced it advances fast it advances 45 minutes to an hour every day of more sunlight by early april we have 24-hour sunlight right now on the arctic ocean they're getting a lot of sunlight so that's it's beautiful
2: so what's your main direction guide? Do you have a GPS or are you using just a compass and just go north?
1: We do several things to keep our direction going north. We don't go directly north. We go a little bit west of north because the drift pushes us east uh, and southeast. And we want to account for that. To go north, we, we use a GPS to tell us where we are. We don't have any maps, believe it or not. It's just an ocean. We just I think we brought one like small map of the Arctic Ocean and we threw it out like four days okay we don't need that and so we take our coordinates and it's all reading coordinates uh, latitude longitude and then uh we take compass bearings and the declination is huge like 75 degrees sometimes because the magnetic north pole is so kind of close and, and in fact can be behind us once we get far north and the compass needle takes a long time to settle out sometimes a minute or two so once we find our way north, we just kind of take a bearing to a nice chunk that's on our path and then go there and then take another bearing and keep connecting the dots. You can also take the angle of the your shadow from the sun and keep a, a good northern position or you can, you can kind of Judge which way the wind is blowing and keep that consistent and also keep moving north.
2: So you said the magnetic north of the world isn't the actual North Pole?
0: I think that one's always changing. Is it? Yeah, right, there's the geographic or the the terrestrial North Pole, right?
1: Right, the geographic North Pole is an arbitrary point. Oh, It's where all the lines of longitude intersect. And that is, that's the North Pole. I mean, when you ski to the North Pole, you ski to the geographic North now, the, the magnetic North Pole is where your compass points. And it has moved a lot in the past 100 years, and even a lot in the last 20 years. It used to be kind of down in the Northwest Passage 100 years ago. And in 1997, it was 200 miles northwest of this little town called Resolute in far northern Canada. And now it's, it's, it's kind of moving its way toward Russia. Not as far north as the ge- Geographic North Pole yet, but uh, it's kind of middle western Canada, Arctic Ocean, 85 degrees north of Seoul.
0: So you during 55 days of trekking, what do you do to entertain yourself while you're I mean, sounds like a great opportunity to listen to some podcasts.
1: I do listen to This American Life and Car ah, Talk. okay. Yeah, it's funny. We do take iPods, and I like the distraction of music and getting in the groove and listening to some... A Book on tape or podcast, but my my favorite way to go is is this nothing hmm. because while it's a great distraction and it 's a good groove to get into it can also it's also a way of marking time. oh yeah, I just listened to this album. it must have been sixty minutes that means I have to ski another thirty minutes before I take a break, and you can start counting that way. This expedition I did in Ellesmere Island this spring, which was a lot less intense, it was to make a film, but we were skiing and covered 600 miles our ski days were like seven or eight hours every day i didn't i didn't use my ipod once i just really like letting my mind flow and time can pass very very quickly and your thoughts kind of just detach from what you're doing and it's, it's a nice place to be
0: so you finally make it to the north pole what do you see and what do you feel at that moment put us there with you
1: well we barely made it to the north pole it's a logistical race there's a Russian company that puts an airstrip in near the North Pole during the month of April. And When they pull out, if you're not there, they'll pick you up short of your goal and you fail. Ooh. And they bumped up their departure day by 24 hours within the last week of our trip. Oh. And we had a lot of southeastern drift. Some days we'd wake up and we were drifting three miles south in, a, in six hours of sleep. And so that, that's 12 miles over the 24-hour period. By that point, we'd lost 30 pounds each. We hadn't taken any days off, and we could not figure out a way to outski the drift. And, and at one point, I actually called my expedition manager, uh, this was day 52, and, and said, You got to prepare the press release. We're going to fail. We can't figure out a way to outski the drift. And she actually hung up on me.
0: <laughs> oh my God.
1: And said, I don't need to hear that. Go to sleep for six hours and call me when you wake up and we'll come up with a plan. And our plan that we came up with was basically not to sleep. Because when we were sleeping, we were drifting south and we, we couldn't move fast enough during the day to, to recover what we'd lost while we slept. Skied for 12 hours, took a one-hour nap, ate a meal, and then continued that routine until we got to the North Pole. So for the last 66 hours of the trip, we slept three hours, three one-hour naps. Wow. And we get to the North Pole, and we've been skiing for 17 hours that day. We're not hallucinating or anything, but we, we have a lot of sleep deprivation. And we're very nervous about that. We don't want to do something dumb like two miles from the North Pole where we're not going to make it, where we get injured or overextend ourselves. So we get there, and it's funny. There's no pole. There's no station. It looks like any other place on the Arctic Ocean. And in fact, as soon as you get to the North Pole, you're not there anymore because the ice is moving. Uh, the North Pole's at the bottom of the ocean. But yeah, we barely had enough energy to, to jump in the air. We were, we were just so happy and relieved to make our deadline. We made our deadline by eight hours. Wow! Yeah, we gave ourselves a big hug and... We were like blown away by the enormity of effort it took to reach the North Pole unsupported.
2: Yeah, congratulations. That's a huge feat. And I don't know if I could go that many days straight without getting much sleep at all. I need, I need a solid 10 nine, hours. nine or ten hours. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of your sponsors, your main sponsor. I'm not sure for this trip, but uh, for now you're working with Bergens of Norway. Why did you decide to work with this type of company?
1: Yeah, I've worked with Bergens of Norway since 2007 and they're the largest clothing equipment company in Norway. Uh, They have a relatively new operation in North America. And like all of my sponsors, we wanted to use the equipment that we thought was the best that we trusted out there. And Bergens makes some of the very best polar clothing and equipment and mountaineering equipment as well. So that's the door that we knocked on and we felt that it was the right stuff for the job and so bergen's it was originally a backpack company they they made the very first external frame backpack the founder of the company ole bergen was out in the norwegian hills with his rucksack and he actually took his axe or saw and cut a branch or two and made an external frame pack and then so the original polar explorers used bergen's backpacks and so did we we used the bergen's backpack we had a it rigged so that we could pull sled off of the hip belt, but we wore our Bergen's helium backpack all day, every day. We never took it off. It was just extraordinarily comfortable. They also make tents and, and outerwear and, and wool clothing and and accessories.
2: Is there a specific piece of gear that you would recommend for our more outdoorsy listeners, maybe not as extreme as you, but like to go on hikes or are doing anything outside?
1: Yeah. They have a new backpack called the Tint and it's won uh, several awards. It was one of Backpackers' Gear of the Year awards last year, and I believe it's a 55-liter backpack. Maybe they have bigger versions, too. That has a, a really cool weight distribution system. They call it the spine system that allows the load to kind of pivot around a person's frame as, as a person's hiking or moving, and, and it's extraordinarily comfortable, so... Hunting for a new backpack, that that one's a winner.
2: Yeah, we'll definitely put a link on our website to it. That's great. So you also have this motivational speaking career. Yeah, the people that you're speaking to
0: aren't polar expeditionists, obviously. What makes this journey so applicable to our listeners' lives and the other people you speak to?
1: The elements that we use to take on the challenge of the North Pole uh, I feel can apply to anybody's personal or professional endeavors. It's about committing to the goal and really focusing and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. It's about preparing rigorously where you have an extreme amount of rigor in your research and your physical training and getting ready before the expedition or the major challenge. And Like I said, the preparation is the expedition and you create your own margins of success by how well you prepare. And then it's believing in success, too, that that you have to believe that you're going to be successful. And you have to support that belief with powerful routines or, and positive structures that move you forward. You have to have the right teammates that are are kind of buy into that value system. And then we also adapt to change out there. That's one of the things that saved our expedition, is that we were able to adapt to the changes of the Arctic Ocean and our bodies and the environment and... That's a major thing is to have that commitment to the goal and the preparation, but know that, that you're going to have to change to, to attain success out there. And if you're, if you're too stubborn about not changing, then, then you might be too late and not reach your goal. So those are the sorts of themes that, that I talk about to corporations and schools and community organizations that, that hey, everyone's got goals. Everyone's got things they want to do in life. And there's certain elements from my story that that can that can apply to those challenges too. All your values
2: and the way you look at your expeditions just seems so well planned out, and the way you handle your obstacles, it, it makes perfect sense. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Probably ran a little over the time, but <laughs> uh, you had some great stuff to talk about. We'll, we'll put some more links with your book on this journey. It's called Forward. Uh, on our website, mtnmeister.com. You can also go right to John's personal website, johnhouston.com, and that'll be on our website as well. Do you have any parting words for our listeners and any way that they can connect with you?
1: Yeah, you can find me on Facebook, John Houston Explorer is the URL. We've had a nice long winter, and I've, I've really appreciated the weather, and don't be afraid of winter, everybody. Go outside, dress right, eat right, and enjoy the winter.
2: Hello, Meister fans. We need some help. And if you guys are interested in helping, there's a very easy and specific way you can. It's true. We really want to be transparent with
0: our business decisions. So we're going to tell you exactly how and why you should help us. A huge source of growth for podcasts is this iTunes new and noteworthy section. Only podcasts within their first eight weeks of launch can make this section. And it really
2: exposes and gets the word out about our podcast. Yeah, Ben and I have heard it can help grow your podcast 300% in those first eight weeks, and that's just huge. But we really need your help. There's two main drivers that can help us. Five-star reviews through iTunes, and then also just subscribing and downloading, listening every day. It's no cost to you. We need you to do two things.
0: Subscribe to our podcast, so go to iTunes and subscribe. And also leave us a review, and if you'd be so kind, that would be a five-star review.